never listened to it. I've never seen a video of it. But I know, for one, it was entirely too long. And, and two, I know I spent a substantial portion of it talking about me. That I, that I spent much of it talking about where I had been, what had happened to me, what kind of person that I was, and proportionally a very small portion of it talking about Christ. Now that wasn't my intent, but in my immaturity, I defaulted to focusing on myself. I was reading in uh, Sproul's commentary on Acts this week, and he shared a, uh, an antidote, an antidote for the poison, no, an anecdote, say the right words, an anecdote that stresses the importance of the gospel and really the shocking ignorance of it by so many professing believers. And, and he said that there was a survey that was conducted at a Christian booksellers convention that he intended in which the participants were asked to give their definition of the gospel. By the way, if you come for a membership interview, that's going to be one of the questions. So study up uh, if you have an interview coming up. But what is the gospel? Well, all the responses weren't recorded, but here are a few of them. The gospel is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel is that Jesus can change your life and if you ask him into your heart. The gospel is that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, none of those statements are entirely untrue, but none of those statements are the gospel. When, when all was said and done, of the 100 responses to the question, only one had a true biblical definition of the gospel. Now, I can't comment on the state of all those people's souls, but I can say without hesitation that their understanding of the gospel was desperately wanting, and that's concerning for the church. Now, it's easy for us to sit in judgment of those responses, as incorrect or as incomplete as they are. However, if we're honest, oftentimes we fall into that similar careless language when asked about the gospel or to give our testimony. I certainly did all those years ago. There's a major difference between the gospel and our personal testimony. When I tell you what Christ has done for me, that's not evangelism. Now, it's not bad. It's a good thing to do. Paul's going to share his testimony twice later on in the book of Acts. But make no mistake, it's not the gospel. My story may or may not resonate with the person that I'm talking to, but the experiences of a changed life are not the same as the gospel. We include those details in our testimonies to corroborate the authenticity of the gospel but they're not in and of themselves, the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus changed my life. After all, many people might cite numerous things that have changed their lives, meeting a future wife or husband, getting a new job, maybe even the latest technological advancement. John Piper once said, giving ourselves without giving God looks loving to the world, but it's not. We are a poor substitute for God. The fact is that my story, however interesting it may be, or your story, and however interesting it may be, is not the story that God invested with the power of salvation. Only the gospel story of Jesus, the God-man, the Christ, the Son of the living God, has that power. Who he is and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. That's the gospel story that Paul will preach this morning in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. The gospel of the son of David according to the flesh, God incarnate who was put to death on a cross and raised from the the dead, thereby confirming his identity 
and revealing the atoning power of his death. That sacrifice brought forgiveness and justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is our story. That is our song, as we just sang. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it should ever be on our lips. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time that we've had already in your word and to worship you. You are worthy of it. Lord, bless the preaching of your word now. Give the preacher words to say for your sake and for the sake of your church. And may you get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We, j- we dropped off last week in the middle of Paul's sermon. And what we covered from verses 16 through 25 was Paul's overview of the Old Testament, and more specifically, God's faithfulness in the Old Testament. And now we move into verse 26, and we move into the New Testament. Remember, we ended with John the Baptist last week. And when I say apostolic witness and scripture, and we will cover parts two and three today, the apostolic witness of the earthly ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about in point number two. And the Old Testament scriptures that confirm Christ as that promised Messiah. So let's jump in right there in verse 26. Since we cut Paul off last week, we'll let him continue. Verse 26, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. This verse is linked back to verse 23, where it says, From the descendants of this man, talking about David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So the Savior in verse 23 is the one that brings salvation in verse 26. That's the point of Paul's sermon. God's mercy to Israel from Moses to David, especially in the promise to David that he would send a descendant, or more literally, a seed whose kingdom would have no end. That's the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. The promise they have been waiting for, for over a thousand years, has been fulfilled in Jesus. And now his apostles have been sent to take that message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul's point is that Jesus is the promised son of David. And he was sent to the sons of Abraham. Notice the address, brethren, sons of Abraham's family. The seed promised way back in Genesis 3.15 has come through the line of David. And he's the Savior. He is Christ the Lord. Now, this message of salvation was primarily for the sons of Abraham, the Hebrews, the nation chosen and set apart by the Lord. That's why Paul is standing in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath day once he arrives. That message of salvation pops up a few times in Scripture, and we see that tie to the Jewish people. You'll remember Jesus with the woman at the well in John 4, 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation. Is from the Jews. Same salvation is what we're talking about here. And then, of course, uh, Pastor Kevin referenced this this morning in Sunday school, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. This same salvation from this same Savior to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And it always starts here with the Jewish people. Verse 27, Paul gets into the narrative. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets of which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Notice here what he is saying they don't recognize. And and we know this about Paul, like he's a professional stepper honor of toes, right? Like this is what he's doing in the synagogue. Now he's speaking of the Jews in Jerusalem, but this is hitting close to home to these people too because he references the Sabbath. 
And he says they did not recognize two things. They didn't recognize the Messiah that they've been waiting for since the beginning. And number two, they didn't recognize the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. In other words, you read this every week. They read this every week, and yet they rejected their Messiah. By the time we get to the end of this passage, he's going to say, don't be like them. Don't reject what is obvious, what has been told to you every day. You have been given the very word of God. So Paul now begins to recount the Passion Week of Jesus. Isn't that good timing? Because we will consider and celebrate those events in just a few short weeks. By the way, this is almost identical to the words that Peter says in Acts chapter 3. I'll go back there. Peter said, and now, brethren, same address, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Paul is also communicating to a Jewish audience who is privy to the scriptures. They have access. They have been given the very word of God. He's emphasizing the tragic irony of it all, that they were the very ones who should have understood who Jesus was. They should have known. They read these prophecies every week in their synagogues. What, thi- what things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets? Well, considering the reference to suffering in both Peter and Paul's sermon, our first thought should probably be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So I want to mix those in as we go through this sermon. Primarily, let's start with Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Perhaps Paul has in mind Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, that the rejection of the Messiah by his people was prophesied in Scripture. Verse 28, he continues, And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. Now, what we're going to see here from Paul is an accurate summary of the gospel events. And this is a vital piece of information to us understanding the person and work of Christ. They found no ground for putting him to death. Now, why do we need to mention that? Why is that important? Well, because many popular histories and even well-meaning Christians say that Jesus died guilty of sedition. The narrative goes that he was this over-eager revolutionary that had to be put down by the Romans, and that's simply not the case. That's simply not the case. He was not some rebel. He was not some lawbreaker. He, had, he found no ground for putting him to death. That's corroborated in the gospel message. And this may sound a little repetitive, but over and over again in both Luke and John, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Luke 23, 14, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Could Pilate be any clearer? He is not guilty of the crimes you are trying to pin on him. Eventually, he will wash his hands of this whole thing, a sin in its own right, but Caiaphas and the high priests are guilty of a greater sin. They are bringing an innocent man to be condemned. Even Pilate's wife comes to him and says, hey, don't mess with this. (laughs) This man is a righteous man. Have nothing to do with this. Jesus died an innocent man in the most accurate way we've ever used innocent in the English language. He's the only innocent man that's ever given his life. 
He was never charged with sedition. He broke no laws. He was entirely innocent of the charges that were brought against him. Again, here we have five times Pontius Pilate pronouncing Jesus' innocence. His death was at the request of the Jewish authorities. And why is that important? Because we don't have a law-breaking Savior. We don't have a, a Savior that was even trying to overthrow wicked governments. He followed the law perfectly in his time on this earth. And in the sovereignty of God, there's another truth testified of in the Scriptures. Back to Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his, ma- in his mouth. He was innocent. Verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. Again, historical details being laid out by the Apostle Paul. They had him on a cross, meant he was going to die. I could go off on a whole tirade about what was going on in crucifixion and what that meant. I won't do that this morning. And then they laid him in a tomb. Back to Isaiah 53. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Remember, Isaiah 53 was written upwards of 700 years before Christ was born. Crucifixion had not been invented yet. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Steve Lawson said, we are saved from God's wrath by God's grace. Only God can save from himself. They took him down from the cross. We've talked about this before, but it's an interesting choice of words. And when words are chosen in Scripture, they're chosen from an inspired position, and they're there for a reason. But Peter said this same word in Acts 5.30 and in Acts 10.39. And we talked about this, but the standard Greek word for cross is staros. But Paul's word choice, and Peter's as well, is intentional. They both say zulon, they say tree. Why do they do that? Well, because they're tying in an Old Testament verse that their, their audience would have known very well. And they're bringing in Deuteronomy 21:23, which says, For he who is hanged, hanged on a tree in this sense, is accursed of God. And what do we see later on? Paul will take this in Galatians 3.13 and say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Peter will do the same in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross or on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Paul knew that the scandalous event of Jesus' crucifixion was in the Jews' eyes proof that he was an imposter. The Messiah couldn't have hung on a tree because everyone who hangs on a tree is accursed. But what does Paul do here? Because the the Jews would say, Scripture sets a curse upon someone who hangs on a tree. But Paul argues without that great exchange, that's exactly what happened. He died in an accursed way. He became a curse even though they found no ground to execute him. Even though he was entirely innocent. The great exchange happens there. We would not be able to offer any payment sufficient to cover our sins. So the Lord takes that humiliation upon himself. He becomes the curse on our behalf. But the promised Messiah was to suffer, and suffer he did. He was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. We see the similar sentiment in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse we know well. He made him sin, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Our sin for his righteousness. Our sin for his righteousness bestowed through the very grace of God to those who have been saved by him. Can we just pause and dwell on that glorious reality for a second this morning and praise the Lord. Paul's summary here is that they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. All of Paul's historical details check out because we see it corroborated here in the Gospel of John. Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid, and they laid Jesus there. Oh, and what do you know? These things were also prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. Isaiah 53, 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. And the tomb, by the way, is paramount to this narrative. The death of Christ is paramount to our narrative. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. Christ died. You know what died means every time it's used in Scripture? It died. Christ died. This isn't some illusion. This isn't some spiritual thing. This isn't some smoke and mirrors kind of thing. He did not faint. He was not replaced, uh, as some of the Muslims might say. No, he died. And why did he die? Because it was according to the Scriptures. Because the scriptures told us Messiah would come and suffer and die. And that he was buried. Now, not in a hole, but buried in a tomb. Paul is underscoring the reality of the death of Christ. Christ died on the cross and was buried. But, oh, glorious truth, the story didn't end there. Because verse 30, Paul says, but God raised him from the dead. That's as good a uh, but God as Ephesians 2.4. But God. It was going this way. Everything looked this way. It was done. It was finished. It was a failure. But God raised him from the dead. This is the centerpiece of Paul's sermon. It's the centerpiece of our faith. Christianity rests on the absolute certainty of Jesus' physical resurrection. Jesus had died an accursed death on a tree, and yet God raised him from the dead. The resurrection was a vindication by God that every word Jesus said and every deed he performed was proof of his identity as the Messiah. How could Jesus be a liar if God raised him from the dead? It corroborated the truthfulness of every word that he spoke. It vindicated him as the righteous one on whom death and hell could have no hold. It anticipated his ascension. His enthronement at God's right hand. It guaranteed our present forgiveness and justification. It declared the effectiveness of Jesus' substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. It fulfilled all of the law's demands. Maybe better said, all of God's demands for justice. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.4, He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The contrast here between the seeming death and curse of the cross... And the overwhelming victory of the resurrection is striking. Death was defeated. Victory was achieved. And Paul sounds a lot like Peter here, doesn't he? That we have this, a common, this common refrain in Scripture. Man did this, but God did this. That's what we see over and over again. Paul sounds just like Peter. Peter in Acts 2 
said, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again. 3.15, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. Acts 4.10, Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Peter goes on to say in that sermon, it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Death could not hold the sinless Messiah. Verse 31, Paul continues, And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. I think it's interesting here because Paul does not include himself among the eyewitnesses, at least of these events. It's the twelve that could attest to the totality of Jesus' ministry, from baptism to ascension. Paul calls himself an apostle out of time, but he's obedient to the foundational teachings of those original twelve apostles, those who saw it all with their own eyes. And he calls them witnesses, the, the martyrs, as we would say in, in the Greek. And, he com- and that was commanded explicitly by Christ himself. You'll remember way back in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Acts 2.32 says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Acts 3.15, But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised up from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So we have the witness of the apostles, but there's another witness. And Paul's been using it throughout the sermon already. Peter speaks of it quite, quite clearly in his second epistle. He says in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, what, eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, that seems like that would be enough, right? No, but what does Peter say in verse 19? So we have the prophetic word made more sure. He's talking about the Bible that's sitting in your lap to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Peter speaks of inspired scripture, composed, he says, by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoken from God. How sure is the word of God? Peter says it's surer than the transfiguration that happened right before his eyes. And that's where Paul turns next. He says in verse 32, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus. The word good news that's translated that way in our English Bibles is from the Greek euangelizo. It's where we get our English word evangelism. It's also often translated as gospel. So think about that. We preach to you the gospel of the promise made to the fathers. That's what we preach. That's the idea. This gospel is not new. It's not of our own invention. It's founded in the very word of God. Paul is preaching the gospel founded in Old Testament promises. And we see so many of those promises in the Old Testament. But primarily here we're going to look at two. The promise made to the fathers. One, the coming one promised in Genesis 3.15. And then more pertinent to what we have here, the identification of that seed with the seed promised in 2 Samuel 7, that Davidic king who would have a kingdom that reigns forever. And then he says God has fulfilled this promise to our children. The promise has been fulfilled in Christ perfectly, 
And this generation is now experiencing that. If you have an ESV or a King James or a New King James, I I think the translation is a little stronger there, where they say, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. So it's not, I have to wait for our children to come to knowledge of this. He's saying, we are the children of the fathers that the original promise was made to. You are now experiencing the fulfillment that your fathers and your grandfathers and your great-grandfathers long to see. It's now happening in your generation. And how do we know it's done? Because he raised up Jesus. Back to the resurrection one more time. The same verb by the same actor in verse 22, when the Lord raised up David for the people of Israel. It's an important New Testament theme because that moves right to the understanding of Jesus throughout the New Testament. Matthew 20, 19, on the third day he will be raised up. Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up again. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. What's Paul's point? He once raised up David. He once gave you a king after his own heart. And because he's faithful, he also raised up the son of David. Why? Because he promised to do that. He told David he would do that. This son of David, according to the flesh, was raised up never to see corruption. We'll get to that in a second. And to sit on the throne of David forever. Don't forget that the greatest miracle of God is making dead men alive. Christ, the first fruits, and those that believe to follow. Spurgeon puts it like this, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I risk my whole eternity on the resurrection. How important is the resurrection? It's important. It is the centerpiece of our faith. If, it, if Christ be not raised, we are of all men most miserable. Verse 33, As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. What Paul is about to do is present three Old Testament passages to support his argument. Three back-to-back, all of which are tied to David. All of which are tied to the covenant that God made with David. The first is Psalm 2-7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. A short note on Psalm 2. Great psalm, fun psalm to study. It was viewed by the first century Jews as a messianic psalm. They knew this psalm was speaking about the Messiah. And what does Paul do in a Jewish synagogue? He pulls up a Messianic psalm and says it's been fulfilled in Christ. And it's based on Nathan's prophecy in 2 Samuel 7. You are my son. Jesus was the son. I want to talk about this idea because today I have begotten you. Well, that could cause us some problems. When did Jesus become the son of God? He's always been the son of God. He's always been the second person of the Godhead. He is eternal, Colossians 1, as you saw this morning. Jesus was the Son in the triune Godhead from all eternity. He never ceased to be the second person of the Trinity. He did not set aside his Godhood when he came and dwelt on this earth, and he never will. He has always been God. He will never cease to be God. He is to be worshipped as God. What does that mean then when we say, today I have begotten you, or when David wrote, today I have begotten you, or when the Lord said that through David? When we hear begotten, we rightfully think about birth because that's how it's often used. But Christ did not become or be declared the Son of God at his birth. When was he declared to be the Son of God? It was at his resurrection. That's the context we're talking about here. Now, it's an untraditional application of that begotten, but that's what Paul is driving at. It's that Romans 1-4 idea, that Christ was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So not that Jesus became the Son of God at the resurrection. 
he was confirmed to be the Son of God at the resurrection. The resurrection said he is who he said he is. This is exactly what it is. That's how we know he was telling the truth. His identity as the Son of God, sent from the Father to redeem mankind as their Messiah, was confirmed at that glorious event. I love Warren Wiersbe had a quote about this, and he said, The virgin tomb was like a womb that gave birth to Jesus Christ in resurrection glory. So that's the begotten applied here to the resurrection of Christ. That's how we know he's the Son of God. Verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Perhaps a little less familiar, Isaiah 55, 3 is this reference. Guess what? It's also tied to Nathan's prophecy to David in 2 Samuel 7. So what are these holy and sure blessings of David? Well, I would argue that it's God's covenant promise that he would establish in his descendant an eternal throne and a kingdom that would last forever. And, and why, why is this important? Because if you're going to have an eternal throne, you better have an eternal king to sit upon it. A man will not be able to sit on an eternal throne, at least not for long. If there is an eternal throne and an eternal kingdom that will be preserved forever, you better have an eternal king that can sit on that. And that is the risen Christ. Resurrection makes that a reality. The context of Isaiah 55 is really interesting as well. Because if you keep reading in Isaiah 55, look at what it says. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. By the way, the peoples, those are the ones outside of Israel. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. That's interesting considering the turn that Paul's ministry is about to take. What's he going to do? He's about to turn almost exclusively to the Gentiles. That's the subject of Isaiah 55, that this holy and sure blessings of David are available there for Israel, but not just for Israel. We're going to take this to the peoples. This is going to be taken to the nations, and God will reclaim those people as well. And we'll see that come to fruition later in this chapter. Third verse, verse 35, Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. We've heard this one before. Peter quoted this in his sermon earlier. This is Psalm 1610, the same text that Peter preached at Pentecost. Remember, Peter said, we know where David's buried. It's right over there on the other side of the hill. We know this can't be referring to him because we can take you to his tomb. We know he's seen decay. And what does Paul do but apply it the exact same way here? Look at verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That means he died and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. We know Psalm 1610 is not about David because he died like any other man. He decayed like any other man. So we must have someone who who died and did not undergo decay. Only one man fits that bill. His name is Jesus. Only the one whom God raised from the dead escaped death and decay. And once again, only one who lives forever and never sees decay could rule on a throne for eternity. Paul's main idea, if we sum up his sermon, only by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus were the promises to David fulfilled. Two, Jesus is God's holy one who saw no decay from Psalm 1610. He is the one who received the sure and holy promises to David in Isaiah 55. 
And he is the Son of God whose throne is forever. And we have two witnesses. What's the Old Testament standard? Two or three witnesses. We have the eyewitness of the apostles, of which there were 11 and 12. And what's the second witness? The scriptures. The scriptures. They attested to the veracity of the resurrection. They confirmed the promises of David coming true in their midst. How do we know the Messiah was going to suffer? Let me read the scriptures to you. How do we know the the Messiah was going to rise again? Let me read the scriptures to you. That's what proves it. So knowing all that, Paul issues a call to repentance. It's what we should do in this conversation. Will you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation? Because it's found in no one else. So let's get to that last section of his sermon briefly, verses 38 to 41. It's now time in the sermon for practical application. He's going to exhort his listeners to ask themselves, how does this truth about Jesus affect me? What what does it mean? How does it impact my life? Am I going to believe this truth? Am I going to trust in him or will I trust in my own work and merit? Verse 38, Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. This is interesting because two times already he's made a distinction in his audience. He said, you sons of Israel, you sons of Abraham, and you God-fearers. He said the same thing in verse 26, from the family of Abraham and those who fear God. Now he says, let it be known to you, brethren. The Greek there is Andres Adelphoi. It literally reads, men, brothers. He's talking to the entire group. So the distinction when he calls for repentance is not there. Before, he said, we've got Jews, we've got God-fearers. Now he says, if you want to repent... He addresses the crowd as one, because everyone who comes to Christ comes through the same path, by grace through faith. And he speaks of everyone, pas, remember our study in 1 Timothy, everyone who believes will be forgiven. Remember, he's standing in a Jewish synagogue. He's imploring his hearers to forsake the law, a law, he says, that is futile. The futility of the law, leave that behind and embrace Christ. Well, what do we know from this, what comes out of this missionary journey is the letter to the Galatians. Jewish opposition, Judaizers who want to hold on to the law. I think what we can say here is the Jewish opposition to the gospel message probably begins right here. You can almost see the grumbling in the back of the room. When he says you must embrace Christ and stop trusting in your own merits in the law, the, 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 the crowd that wants to be against him starts to turn. The other part I think that's interesting here is that phrase, through him. It's reminiscent, I think, of one of Paul's favorite statements in his epistles, and that's in Christ. Through him or in Christ. Eighty-four times in his epistles, Paul talks about being in Christ, trusting in Christ. So if we read it that way, Paul said, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that in Christ forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And in Christ... Everyone who believes is freed from all things. That's the message. Christ is the way. And then he says that you are freed. That's an interesting word. More accurately, it means justified or made righteous. Dikaiao is the Greek word. What Paul is explaining here is one of his favorite doctrines. He gets into it much more in his epistles. It's the doctrine of justification. What is the doctrine of justification? Being made righteous before God 
through the atoning work of Christ. That he sees Christ's work rather than yours, and that's a good thing. Paul was insisting here that what is what he, what he wrote in Galatians and Romans. The law cannot confer forgiveness of sins. The law cannot declare a person in right standing with God. In fact, the law condemns the person that stands before God because it reveals our iniquity and our inability to obey it completely. It's the gospel alone that justifies through faith alone in Christ alone. We see it here. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from all things, from which you could not be justified through the law of Moses. If you want to have righteousness, it only comes from one place. You must get it from Christ. Not a combination of legal obedience plus faith in Christ. No, Paul is insisting here there's no possibility of justification at all through attempts at obeying the law. It is faith alone in Christ alone. That's the, the, the mantra of the, of the Reformation. Second, justification is offered to everyone who believes. If you come to Christ in faith, you will receive justification. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're a Gentile, that is available through faith. Finally, verse 40 and 41. Therefore, take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you shall never believe, though someone should describe it to you. One more scripture to cap off his sermon. There's always one more scripture we can put on the sermon. This one is meant to shock. This one is meant to kind of deliver the closing blow here. And I won't be surprised if you don't know what that reference is off the top of your head. Probably not in most of your daily reading. That's in Habakkuk chapter 1. And unless you're doing a yearly reading plan, you're probably not spending a lot of time in Habakkuk. Maybe we should spend more time there. But Habakkuk 1.5. And the original context of that passage is a warning to Israel about King Nebuchadnezzar about the rise of Babylon and how Babylon will one day come and take away what Israel has. The interesting thing is when he makes this prophecy, Babylon's kind of the small, a small town. <laughs> Babylon is nowhere near the empire that it's going to be, and yet it's prophesied that that will be the instrument that God uses uh, to judge his people. So let's bring that into a, a, a modern context for these people. In the present context, the threat seems to be that God would once again bring judgment on his people if they failed to accept the mercy and the forgiveness that was offered to them in Christ. If they continued in their rejection, like the Jerusalem Jews did, they would also be rejected. And when we think about history, this is interesting because consider that in less than 25 years, Jerusalem will lay in ruin. The temple will be destroyed. That, that, that in the final verses of the chapter, Paul's going to be led by the Spirit to do in the Jewish mind what is unthinkable, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, we know we've worked on that a little bit with Cornelius and what's going on back in Antioch and all that, but that's a new concept to the Jewish world, and that's exactly what's going to happen. What's going on? The partial hardening that Paul talks about in Romans 11, starting right here. This is the beginning point of that for the Jewish people. Furthermore, by using Habakkuk, perhaps Paul is further emphasizing his previous invitation. How so? Because the central truth from Habakkuk, it's quoted several times in the New Testament, is found in chapter 2, verse 4. And you probably know it well, even if you don't know the reference. But it says in Habakkuk 2, 4, but the righteous or the just will live by what? Faith. 
What has he just extended to them? Believe in faith in your promised Messiah from your scriptures. And he quotes from that same book here in saying, you need to live in, the, in faith in the Messiah that God has sent you, or judgment may come. Which takes us back to Psalm 2. What's the warning at the end of Psalm 2? Kiss the son, do homage to the son, lest he become angry. Judgment may be coming. Let's conclude with one last scripture. I'll follow Paul's model. Ephesians chapter 6. The question is, when we're contending for men's souls, now I know God does that, but you understand what I'm saying. What weapons do you take into battle? Your story cannot save, but the word of the Lord certainly can. That's part of what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6. We could go through all the armor, but let's focus on one piece. Verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We've identified our enemy. And the last thing he says to take to battle in verse 17 is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The term there for sword refers to a short-handled sword. It's makaira in the Greek. It's, it's, a, it's a weapon for close combat. It's not, like I say, the Braveheart sword, right? You're not swinging this with two hands. This is close combat. The enemy is close. The threats are there. This is for when the world closes in. This is for when the fiery darts come raining down. And he says, take that sword, which is the word of God. Now, when we hear word of God, we often run to John 1.1, and rightfully so. The logos, the os, the word of God. There's, it's a different word here. And I've explained this in the past, but... The word here is rhema thaos. It's a little different. Rhema is the spoken word of God. Rhema means divine utterance. The idea is the employment of the scriptures to defeat the schemes of the devil. That's what he said back in verse 11 of Ephesians 6. Think of Jesus in the wilderness. When he is confronted by Satan, how does he combat Satan? He quotes the word of God. That's rhema theos. Again, what I've said before in previous verses for this chapter, the gospel never remains on the shelf. It's not a decorative sword. It's outfitted for battle. It's the same sword Paul brought with him into this synagogue at Antioch. And what's going to happen? Some will be cut to conviction. Others will be cut to wrath. Either way, the word of God does what God intends it to do to his glory. So to build from last week, take up the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. Read it, meditate on it, study it, memorize it. And when the Lord gives you an opportunity to share your faith, make sure the gospel is at the center of your testimony. We're not life coaches. We're not here to give practical advice on behavior modification. No, we wield the very words of God. The power of salvation is communicated by human lips. And if that doesn't humble you, That is hugely important. We preach life to dead men and women, and it's worth every risk. J.C. Ryle said, One single soul saved shall outlive and outweigh all the kingdoms of the world. If you've got young children like me or you've had young children, a, a, a children's song that is often sung in our church circles And it's always fun because it has hand motions, right? That's how you want songs for kids to be. But you remember, I'm in the Lord's army. And and, and it's fun and it's, you know, you can fly them around the living room and all that. But we would do well not to totally trivialize that song. 
It's fun, hand motions and all, but the reality of who we serve, what we carry, and what we are called to is humbling, it's terrifying, it's encouraging, all at the same time. The question we have to ask ourselves, is the gospel important enough for us to live our lives based upon it? Is it important enough to communicate it clearly? And I would argue, brothers and sisters, the answer is is an unqualified yes. If he died for us, as Pastor said this morning, we should be willing to die for him. If the word is what we say it is, then to hold it and hide it away and put it on a shelf would be a disservice and an example of disobedience to our righteous God. Preach the word in all circumstances, in all times. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. You are worthy of it. You are good. You are mighty. We get forgiveness in your name and your name alone. Thank you for your son, the the cross, the resurrection, the gospel of our salvation. Father, help us to take that with us. Help it not to be something we display on a shelf, but something we take into the world with us. Outfit us with the truth that you've given us, the sword of the Spirit. Lord, let us write write it on our hearts so that we can utilize it in times when darkness seems to be closing in. We want to glorify you with our lives, Lord. I pray you would convict those who may not understand your gospel, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would make their sin evident, their inability to be righteous evidence so that they would fall on their knees at the cross, put their faith in you alone for salvation. And we give you the glory for that, Lord, for your will to be done and for your name to be glorified. We love you and we thank you for our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.